currently working our way through a series entitled The Story, and uh, I found myself challenged this week because um, what, what I've seen, and, and this is not a fair assessment on all churches, but what, what I've experienced along the way many times is that whenever you have holiday Sundays like Mother's Day and, and other days that, that come throughout the year, um, the church oftentimes uh, has a a dangerous tendency to, to move in the direction of gospel light that week. In other words, we're going to have a lot of people visiting. We're going to kind of pare back a little bit um, on the heaviness, so to speak. And yet, as we sit in this particular series, where we are this week just doesn't allow for that. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. Not only are we not going to uh, move toward a gospel light Sunday, but it's actually going to be uh, maybe one of the most complex passages in all of Scripture. So, um, welcome to Cross Point Peachtree City. Glad that you're here. Um, if you haven't been around, the idea behind this series, this story, is this: we're we're attempting to lay out, and this is not in an exhaustive fashion, but um, the major acts of redemptive history. And so, we we want to give people a handle on on where the Bible is going, what, what this story really is that God is authoring and has entered into as a character himself, namely in the person of Jesus. And so if you are new, um, sometime before you leave this morning, I would encourage you even to just to come up to the front of the auditorium and, and take a minute or two to read these banners that are hanging from the ceilings. This is our attempt to try to summarize as best we can what these major acts of redemptive history have to say. Uh, and so... We, we began this series by looking at the author of Scripture, namely the God of the universe. And uh, as anyone reading a book should do, what we essentially did was flip the book over to the, the back dust cover about the author snippet. Um, because who the author is, the worldview of that particular author, um, the experiences of that author play into the very story itself. So it's helpful to know something about the author. And, and as I mentioned, in this case, the author of redemptive history is the God of the universe. And so we talked about some things that are necessary to know about God as we entered into this series um, so that when we pick up our Bibles, we have a, a better understanding of who God is and what he's after and then we spent a couple of weeks talking about the story of creation. In Genesis 1, you get the panoramic view of the creation story as God uh, lays out the stage of his divine redemptive historical drama, hanging stage lights from the cosmos in the form of sun, moon, and stars, creating the domains of, of earth and water and sky, and creating a supporting cast of creatures to inhabit those domains, and then creating man as his image bearer as the crown and glory of creation. And then in Genesis 2, the, the camera zooms in on the story of God and man. We find man in God's uh, perfect utopian garden sanctuary of Eden, walking with God. Um, God offering man a thousand tokens of his love and grace as his great creator and king. And yet there's that one tree that makes us go, uh-oh. God says, don't touch it, and what's going to happen? And as you move into the second major act of redemptive history, the story of the fall of man in Genesis 3, we see exactly what happens. We see the serpent Satan himself on the scene, uh, crafty and subtle, attempting to uh, tempt Adam and Eve, asking the question, did God really say, calling man to question the authority of God's word? 
He, he paints a picture of a world in which man can play by his own rules rather than playing by God's rules, that man can call the shot, a life of self-determination, a life of judicial autonomy. Instead of God's world and God's word, it can be your world and your word. And in the moment, the forbidden becomes a delight to the eyes and our first parents sin against God. And they find that they don't feel like God at all. Rather, they feel dirty. They feel exposed. They feel guilty. They feel ashamed. And they do what most human beings do when they see their sin for what it is. They attempt to cover it up. And we've been doing it ever since. That the very joy that Adam and Eve were created for to bask in the presence of God is the very thing that they run from like a couple of fugitives. And so it becomes a game of cosmic hide-and-go-seek from the God of the universe, which is a game that you can never win because God knows your hiding spot before he ever quote-unquote closes his eyes and counts to 10. And so the perfect utopian garden sanctuary of Eden becomes a courtroom. God's character is at stake. How is he going to respond And so we see God react as not just a loving father, but also a just judge. We see both, that he punishes Eve with the pains of childbearing. He punishes Adam with the toil of work. We see the entrance of human conflict, especially within the context of covenant marriage, that loving and cherishing are replaced with dominating and ruling. Man experiences not only spiritual death, as the umbilical cord between man and God is severed, but also physical death, that man will one day die, being swallowed up by the very ground that he was meant to exercise dominion over. That even creation itself experiences the effects of the curse, that the glorious stage of God's redemptive historical drama is now filled with thorns and thistles. Everything is broken. But in the midst of the curse, God also offers hope as a loving father. He he protects Adam and Eve from eating of the tree of life, an act that would keep them in their sinful state forever. He he knows that their man-made coverings of fig leaves can only last so long, and so he clothes them with animal skins. And ultimately, God makes a glorious promise to Adam and Eve to send a hero, a descendant of Eve, to crush the serpent's head, that in the wake of Adam and Eve's expulsion from the garden, we're meant to now anticipate that coming hero. We're meant to look for him. He's coming, and though, though it will come at a price, the, the bruising of his heel, Genesis 3.15 says, he will crush the serpent. That's going to happen, God says. He will rescue his people from the domain of darkness. And so as we pick up the story this morning, the question that begs to be answered is this. What does the story of the garden have to do with us? Does the story that happened so long ago have implications for our very lives? And I would argue that the answer is yes. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Romans chapter 5. We'll be in verses 12 through 21 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and flip open to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible's yours for free. The church's gift to you. Please take that Bible. Again, this is not uh, an attempt to move in the direction of gospel light this morning. Um, The book of Romans is one of the the most theologically complex books in all of the Bible. And Romans chapter 5 just might be one of the most complex chapters in one of the most complex books in all of the Bible. So um, I I don't usually say this, but you're more than welcome, even right now, if you need to get up and go get some coffee from the the back corner of the room, you're more than welcome to do that. I'm gonna attempt to do my best. Um, You'll you'll even notice this morning up on the screen, have you ever seen the um, kids' DVDs that have the, the bouncing ball over the words when you're supposed to sing them? So, so I've laid out the, the slides like that, not because I don't, I don't think you're educated, but because as I dove into this passage and all the commentaries this week, I thought, 
my, my head hurts and, and we deeply need as much help as we can to kind of know where we are in this passage. But I think the reward is great in this. Uh, I, I think you'll see that much more that the Bible uh, is not uh, just a book of haphazard stories thrown together, piecemeal together uh, with no purpose behind them, but rather is one glorious story with one hero binding it together, namely Jesus, that the Bible is not ultimately a book of heroes to emulate, though we see many uh, point us to what obedience to God looks like. Rather, ultimately, the Bible is a story of one hero, again, namely Jesus, who holds it all together, that the Bible is not ultimately a book of rules. It's not ultimately about man and and what we do or don't do, but rather it's ultimately about God and what he has done for us in Christ. So there's a lot at stake here. So let me pray for us this morning, and, and we'll jump in and we'll get to work. God, we love you. We thank you for what you're doing in and through this church. Thank you for what you're doing in and through this series. God, I pray that you would help us to see uh, a glorious Jesus this morning who empowers motherhood by his grace, a glorious Jesus who empowers fatherhood by the grace of his spirit, a glorious Jesus who empowers all walks of life, God. Um, We thank you for Romans 5, and the beauty of the connecting of the dots between what happened in the garden and and our very lives present day. God, I pray that we would be freed from looking at ourselves and and would be freed to look at Christ and experience the grace and and, uh, liberty that comes in the gospel this morning. Would you do that by the power of your spirit? It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So, I don't want to make light of the fact that we just jumped from Genesis 3 to Romans 5. That's kind of a big leap, right? I mean, you you got to have some long legs to make that jump and actually get from one side of the river to the other. Um, What that means is we've left out some major components of redemptive history in in this conversation. There there are a number of ways to go about a series like this one. So um, we could have traced the spiral of man downward following his expulsion from the garden, from the first murder in human history as Cain slaughters his brother Abel to the murder of the son of God as man crucifies the hero who came to save him and everything in between those two murders. We could have traced it that way. We could hold all the heroes of the faith under a microscope and prove there's only one true perfect hero. Even just considering those mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, what Christians oftentimes refer to as the hall of faith, we, we know that uh, though Abraham was a man of faith, he lied twice. We know that though Noah was a man of faith, after the flood, he planted a vineyard and got drunk off the wine. That might be the most premeditated sin in all of human history, right? Think about it. I'm gonna plant a garden, grow the grapes, ferment them so that I can get drunk off of it. That's real sinning. Though Sarah was a woman of faith, she laughed at God. Though Isaac was a man of faith, he lied. Though Jacob was a man of faith, he deceived. Though Moses was a man of faith, he was a murderer. Though David was a man of faith, he was a murderer and an adulterer. We're meant to go, where's that hero? Where's that descendant of Eve who will come and crush the serpent's head? Where is he? Because everyone seems to be falling on their face as I continue to read the scriptures. In a series like this, we could focus on God's grace. 
following man's expulsion from the garden. The, the way God places a protective mark on Cain, even after Cain slaughters his brother. God's covenant with Noah, his commitment to preserve creation and restore it. God's covenant with Abraham, promising to establish a people for himself, complete with land and blessing. The preservation of his people in the midst of famine through the story of Joseph. The redemption of God's people from enslavement in Egypt through the Exodus. Salvation by substitution through the Passover. Salvation by conquest through the crossing of the Red Sea. God's presence with his people via the tabernacle. God's gift of the land of Canaan. God's covenant with David to establish not only the temple, but an eternal kingship through his lineage. The the restoration of a remnant in the wake of the exile and, and on and on we could go of God's grace throughout the course of the Old Testament. And I'm sure we'll cover much of everything that I just laid out over the course of the last few minutes in the coming years as a church. But, but here's the deal. The Apostle Paul lays, lays out some pretty low-hanging fruit for us this morning in Romans chapter 5. A seamless transition uh, from the, the promise made in the garden to the fulfillment of that promise in Jesus. A seamless transition from the declaration of a serpent-crushing hero to come to the declaration of Jesus as that hero. And so as you pick up Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, I think it's critical before we even jump into verse 12 to to point you to the back of verse 14. If you'll look at the the back end of verse 14 for just a second, you'll, you'll notice some language there. It says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Okay, that, that's gonna lay out our entire understanding of this passage this morning. That what that means is that Adam sets a pattern for the work of Christ. That in the way we're united to Adam, there's some sense that we're united to Christ in the same way, and yet they're different. And so what Paul's gonna do in verses 12 through 14 is say, look at how Adam and Jesus are alike. And then for the remainder of this passage, Paul's gonna say, look at how Adam is a bazillion times, or Jesus is a bazillion times better than Adam. Okay, so you tracking with me? They're similar, verses 12 through 14. They're nothing alike because Christ is superior, verses 15 through 21. That's where we're going this morning. So verse 12, therefore, there's the bouncing ball up on the screen in big, bold font. Therefore, okay, so Paul says, in light of what I've been saying for four and a half chapters, so even the book of Romans, we're coming in with a need for some context here. What, what has Paul been saying for four and a half chapters that leads to this word, therefore, It goes something like this, the argument of the book of Romans leading up to this morning's passage. Man has a real dilemma on his hands, namely that God is righteous and man is sinful. And so you have the righteousness of God and the rottenness of man. What do you do with that? Because God is righteous, he must bring sinners to justice. If he doesn't, if he sweeps crimes under the rug, he's a terrible judge who should be disbarred from the bench. We talked about that last week. Even worse news is that every human being is sinful, Paul says, Jew and Gentile alike. No one's getting off the hook. All crimes against God will be punished. But, Paul says in the first uh, four and a half chapters or so of, of the book of Romans, God in his mercy has made a way to vindicate his righteousness and at the same time spare sinners. That Jesus, the serpent crushing hero that was promised in Genesis 3.15, took our sin upon himself and bore the righteous wrath of God on behalf of sinners like you and me. And in doing so, he revealed God's love and preserved God's justice, both. And so salvation is gifted to those who by faith trust in the person and finished work of Jesus. That, that's the argument leading up to chapter five, 
verse 12. So that what Paul's basically, basically going to say in this morning's passage is, therefore, isn't Jesus glorious? Therefore, isn't Jesus worthy of worship? That's, that's ultimately what we're after this morning. If you walk away this morning and you go, Jesus is glorious. If you walk away this morning and you go, Jesus is worthy of my worship, then, then that's a win. You've understood rightly Romans chapter five, verses 12 through 21. So let's take a look at the argument and pray that, that God would create that in us. Uh, and isn't Jesus' glorious posture? Verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, uh, one man namely Adam, okay, and death through sin. So death became part of the world as we know it when Adam sinned in the garden. We talked about that last week. When Adam sinned, not only did he experience spiritual death, the severing of the umbilical cord between he and God relationally, but also uh, he was cursed with physical death. And Paul goes on to say, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Uh-oh, wait a minute. Now you're making it personal, Paul. You're saying that Adam's crime is somehow connected to me? Who are you to say that? What gives you that kind of right to connect the dots from what happened in the garden in Genesis 3 to me, to my story? Paul's making the case that Adam's story isn't just for Adam, but it's also our story as well. It's your story. It's my story. I don't think any of us can argue with the first part of that phrase, and so death spread to all men. If you, if you want to prove that statement wrong, all you have to do is not die. Good luck with that. Let me know how that one goes for you. If you cheat death, I'd love to know your, your formula for that. It's the second part of the phrase that, that's most bothersome to people. Who are you, Paul, to call me a sinner? Well, there are two ways to come at this thing. One would be to say that you're a sinner because you have a rap sheet to prove it. And the other would be to say that you're a sinner simply because you're in Adam, that he's your federal representative. And, and, and here's the crazy thing. The easier of the two to argue would be the first, to just lay out your rap sheet for you. But I'm convinced that Paul's actually talking about the second of these two possibilities, and I'll show you why that matters, why it's critical that we see that in just a moment, that you and I are sinners simply because we're in Adam, that he's our federal representative but, but let me stop for a moment because I actually do think it's pretty easy to establish a rap sheet on all of us, is it not? You're like, man, I thought he was gonna bypass that. <laughs> if we understand what sin actually is, none of us can come out unscathed if we're honest. Think about it this way. I think we have a very reductionistic understanding of sin. Let me lay out what sin includes and I don't even think this list is exhaustive. Sin includes doing what we ought not to do. Sin includes not doing what we ought to do. Loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. What we talked about during the child dedication piece. Um, Adam sitting on the bench while Satan danced with his girl. That, that was not entering in and doing what you should do in that moment. So we're talking acts of commission and acts of omission. And not just acts, but words, thoughts, and motives behind those acts. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look lustfully upon a woman, you're, you're liable to the same judgment. You're, that there's something about the heart that drives the action uh, above the surface that, that is visible to man. And Jesus says both are sin. Sin includes living as if there were no God. 
Sin includes living as if we are God. That idea of Adam and Eve in the garden, judicial autonomy, self-determination. Sin includes idolatry, elevating people and things other than God to a place of supremacy, usually good things that we make God things. Sin includes illegal actions like murder and things that aren't against the law like adultery. Sin includes both the deliberate, the intentional, and the unintentional. If you read the book of Leviticus, which I'm sure most of you spent your quiet time doing this week, you'll see that there are sacrifices that are meant to be made for even unintentional sins. I didn't even realize that was a sin and I committed it. Sin includes ignoring the conviction brought about by the Holy Spirit in those moments where you know God's leading you in a direction and you ignore it. Sin includes the perversion of good things for evil, sex perverted to pornography, food perverted to gluttony, and so forth and so on. And lastly, sin includes using people or things to help you escape your own personal hell, which makes those things functional saviors. In other words, if loneliness is your version of personal hell, um, then, then you can very easily make a relationship with, a, with another human being a functional savior to help you escape that hell. And the problem with that is not that relationships are evil. It's that you're declaring that that person is, is the hero of Genesis 3.15, meant to swoop in and save the day. And your story, removing Christ from his throne as the one supreme hero, meant to save you. Again, that list is not exhaustive. Even if Paul were saying that our rap sheet proves us to be sinners, the argument, I think, would be airtight. But again, I'm convinced that what Paul's saying is that you and I are sinners simply because we're in Adam, that Adam is our federal representative. In other words, his sin is imputed to us. His judgment became our judgment. In some mysterious way, we're united to Adam in his sinning. You might say, well, well, why does that matter? Why, isn't it enough to just go Romans 3.23 here, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and make your point that way? That there are plenty of verses in the Bible that, that argue that we're depraved just fine on our own. We don't need Adam's help to prove that, right? Why do we have to go deeper in terms of the cause of our guilt, in terms of the cause of our condemnation uh, than our own rap sheet? Why do we have to go deeper than that? Why does our union with Adam, that language of being united to Adam, why does that matter so much? Again, the end of verse 14 is the, is the, the linchpin here, that Adam is a type of the one to come. That the entire comparison between Adam, the curse, and Jesus, the cure, is at stake here. It's all at stake here. So let me get ahead of myself and make sense of what I mean, and then we'll unpack it for just a few minutes. If Adam's sin is not imputed to us, then Christ's righteousness is not imputed to us. In other words, if your guilt is based solely on your rap sheet, not on your union with Adam, then your righteousness is based solely on your rap sheet as well, not your union with Christ. Do you see what's at stake here? That's terrible news. If, if your standing before God is based on your rap sheet as it pertains to righteousness, it can only condemn you. You're in big trouble. How good is good enough? How do you know when you've done enough so that you can stand before God and, and he'll just go into applaud mode and say, I'm, I'm really glad you're on my team now. In contrast, the good news of the gospel is this. Just as Adam's sin is imputed to us because we are in him, so Christ's righteousness is imputed to us because we are in him. 
This is what Paul drives at again in verse 18. If you look ahead, he says, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, you see it? So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Whose righteousness leads to your justification before God? Not yours, but Christ's righteousness. In the same way, whose sin leads to your condemnation? Not yours, though you're a sinner, but Adam's sin. Is your head hurting yet? You ready to take me up on that cup of coffee? It should be hurting. If it weren't, I don't think I'd be preaching this appropriately, and I don't think you'd be understanding it rightly. In fact, John Piper actually goes so far as to say this. He says, Paul is dealing with the saving work of Jesus Christ at a level that pushes the limits of the human mind. So don't panic and don't be too discouraged if you find the flow of thought in these verses difficult to follow. They are difficult. But it's because he's taking us very deep into the very structure of salvation and history and humanity and deity. This should encourage us to linger over these verses and meditate long on them and work hard to mine the gold and silver found there. So if ever you should take what we talked about on Sunday and just spend time in the scriptures this week, diving deeper into it, it's Romans chapter five, verses 12 through 21. Paul says we're all sinners because we're in Adam. And he knows that we're gonna push back on that in such a way that he unpacks it in verses 13 and 14. Now, I would not have unpacked that point in the way that you're about to read him do so because it just makes my head hurt even more. But follow the train of thought. Verses 13 and 14, Paul says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. That's Moses. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type, there we go, of the one who was to come. So, Again, a really deep way of trying to make your point, Paul. Thank you for that. What what I think Paul's saying is this. Prior to God giving the law in Moses' day, sin was in the world between the time of Adam and the time of Moses. You can read all about it, Genesis chapter four, all the way up through Exodus chapter 20. You see man's depravity everywhere. Sin written all over the pages of of that part of the, the biblical story. From, from man's depravity during the time of the flood to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah to Pharaoh's godlessness and so forth and so on. That during that time leading up to the giving of the Ten Commandments, there were people, verse 14, who didn't sin personally against a known law like Adam did, yet they died. It's Paul's attempt to argue that all of those who lived from the time of Adam until the time of Moses didn't die because of their own sins, though they were sinners. Again, they died because they were in Adam. Adam was their federal representative. And that's good news in Paul's mind, crazy enough, because he's gonna go on to say that Adam was a type of the one who was to come, Jesus. That the work of Adam sets the pattern for the work of Christ. The way we're united to Adam sets the pattern for the way we're united to Jesus, okay? If you struggle with, with um, even as a Christian, with falling into that ditch of, of believing that your record it determines how God feels about you, th- this is massive. And I, I think that's written all over the culture known as the Bible Belt. That we, we grew up, many of us in legalism, this struggle to, to believe that, 
the checking of boxes is actually a determining factor for how God feels about us. And then for the rest of our Christian lives, we just struggle with falling back into that ditch over and over and over again and having to be reminded that, no, Christ, Christ's record, look at his record, look at his record of merit, not your own. This passage is rescue from the despair of legalism. Again, I come back to Piper who says this, the deepest reason why death reigns over all is not because of our individual sins, but because of Adam's sin imputed to us. So, here's the good news. The deepest reason eternal life reigns is not because of our individual deeds of righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness imputed to us by grace through faith. That It's not about what you do or don't do. It's about Christ and what he's done. That your justification before God isn't based on your obedience, but rather the obedience of Christ on your behalf and your union to him by faith alone. That going back to the garden, you can put the fig leaves down. God offers you something far better, the righteousness of his son. Paul's gonna spend the remainder of this morning's passage putting this beautiful truth on display. That thus far, he's been making a case of how Adam and Jesus are alike. And now, in, in the remaining verses, he's going to show us that Jesus is nothing like Adam. He's far superior to Adam. And here's how. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. What, what's the free gift Paul's talking about here? According to the end of verse 17, it's the free gift of righteousness. So here's one way you could say it. Adam holds out his hands and gives you guilt. Adam holds out his hands and gives you condemnation. Jesus holds out his hands and he doesn't give you anything. He gifts you his grace and righteousness that Adam can only give. Only Jesus can gift because what he actually offers you is worthy of putting a bow on. You don't put a bow on guilt. It's like black socks at Christmas. Who wants it? Nobody, right? But what Christ offers, you can put a bow on. The grace of God lavished upon you and the righteousness of Christ poured out upon you so that he covers you in his righteousness. And the crazy thing, according to this verse, it's free in that you don't buy it with your goodness. He extends it to you by his grace, Another way that we could say uh, what verse 15 is driving at is that grace far outshines sin. You, you might say, man, I'm a terrible sinner. I don't know if you know that, Jamie. I'm far more sinful than I ever imagined. To which my response is this. Christ is a far more glorious savior than you are a terrible sinner. The cross of Christ abounds in gloriousness over the sins of man. That's what Paul's saying here that you're not beyond the reach of God's grace. If you believe that, you're wrong. The Bible says so. Verse 16, another Jesus is superior argument. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass, namely Adam's, brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So what he's saying here, in Adam, we're guilty. We're condemned. But Jesus, think about it this way. Jesus does better than just remove the guilty verdict, the condemnation, because that's not good enough. A, a, a removal of the not guilty verdict gets you nowhere because in a matter of moments, you just sin the next time and you bring the guilty verdict right back on you. 
You see how that doesn't do enough? He can't just bring you back to ground zero. Jesus says, no, I do better than that. How about a perfect righteous record? How about I give you that? That's what the word justification in verse 16 means. Jesus takes your guilt, it's courtroom language, and he gives you his perfect righteous record to hold before the God of the universe in his cosmic courtroom. That if you're a Christian, when God looks at you, he he sees more than not guilty. He sees righteousness. That's crazy, isn't it? Even when you don't feel righteous, not because you are, but because Jesus is for you and has gifted you his perfect record. That will preach to the self-deprecating in the room. Right? You are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. Most of us in the room need to declare that over and over and over again as we leave this place. You might say, I don't deserve that. How could that be? You're right. You don't deserve that, and that's good news. If it were about deserving, you'd still be in Adam. You'd still be condemned. You'd still be guilty. Praise be to God that he doesn't give us what we deserve. That's what grace is. When you read the Gospels, and I needed to be reminded of this myself this week, when you read the Gospels, every time you see Jesus acting rightly, acting righteously, you're not meant to simply see a good moral teacher. You're meant to see the foundation of your very acceptance before God. Every time he obeys, every time he stays the course, that's the record he's gifting you to hold before God. That's crazy. Another glorious truth in verse 16, the difference between the language of one and many. One trespass, namely Adam's in the garden, brought condemnation. Jesus, on the other hand, overcame many trespasses. He overcame a flood of sin, we're told. That your astronomical sin record is no obstacle for God. To say that it is, is to diminish the power of Jesus' death and resurrection. Again, you're not beyond the reach of God's grace. You can come to him even now. Verse 17, another Jesus' superior statement. For if by the one man's trespass, Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus does one better than we think he he would. In Adam, you die. In Christ, Paul says, you do far more than live. You, You reign. God's grace can make sinners like us into royalty. That's that's insane. Romans chapter 8, 16 and 17 says it this way. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs or co-heirs with Christ. That if you're a Christian, Jesus' inheritance is your inheritance. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, that we have nothing, yet we possess everything. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul even goes so far to say that we will judge not only the world, but angels. What does that mean? We don't even have time to unpack that, but that's nuts, right? We'd all miss lunch if we tried to talk about what it means that we will one day judge angels. But according to the apostle Paul, that is a piece of salvation, of redemption, and the glorification that that is to come. From death, not just to life, but to reigning with Christ, Paul says. And, And now the summary of everything he's been saying thus far, if you want kind of the thesis statement, if you wanna go home and just mark in your Bible, what in the world is Paul saying in verses 12 through 21, just mark verses 18 and 19. Here's the summary. He says this, 
Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Adam sinned, Paul's saying, uniting us to himself as condemned sinners. Jesus obeyed perfectly, uniting to himself and gifting his righteous record to all who will trust in him by faith. In other words, summary statement, in Adam we stand condemned, going back to everything that this series has been talking about thus far. In Christ, by faith alone, we stand justified. And now the closing of this five-chapter-long glorious dissertation, I guess you could call it, of Paul in Romans 1 through 5 on how condemned sinners can be declared righteous before God. Look at these last two verses. Now, verse 20, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that, verse 21, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, Before the law came in Moses' day, we were all guilty in Adam. As one scholar puts it, when the law came, it it made little Adams out of all of us. That makes sense? Don't steal, don't lie, don't covet, the law says. Now all of a sudden, specific acts of transgression are visible everywhere. You you see them everywhere you go. We steal, we lie, we covet. It's It's like my oldest daughter Um, You saw her up here earlier. We had to give her a thing of Cheerios so that she would actually be pleasant in front of the entire room full of people. We say, don't climb on chairs that will cause you to plummet to a head injury. And what does she do? She climbs on chairs that will cause her to plummet to a head injury. That's what the law does. Meant to make you say, oh my goodness, we're, we're far more sinful than we ever imagined. The rabbit hole of depravity goes far deeper than we ever thought. Yet, Praise be to God that his grace abounds all the more. How much more glorious his grace comes into view when you see your sinfulness for what it is, which is why you function as an enemy of your own joy every time you attempt to minimize your sin. Every time you attempt to run from community and being known and processing what sin looks like in your life, you function as the greatest enemy of your own joy that a growing awareness of our sinfulness leads to a growing awareness of the glory of God's grace would be one way that we could say it. The final point I'll make this morning is this, and I think this is is critical, okay? This this drives at everything we've talked about and and what it implies for us in terms of whether or not we, we really understand the gospel or not. The final point is this justification, everything Paul's talking about in Romans 5, the exchange of your guilt for Jesus' righteousness is not an end. It's a means. Okay, here's what I mean by that. Some people think uh, that the goal of Christianity is guilt removal, is shame removal, is wrath removal. Those things are not an end, but rather a means to a greater end. All right, let, let me explain what I mean. Let's take wrath for an example, okay? Listen to these two statements and see if you notice the difference between the two. The first one is this, as it pertains to wrath. Jesus rescued me from the wrath of God by bearing the wrath of God in my place. Okay, that's one way that you could say it. You go yes and amen to that, but listen to the second statement, see if you notice the subtle difference. 
Jesus bore the wrath of God in my place so that I could stand in the presence of the 5,000 degree centigrade holiness of God and not burn up in an instant, but rather can enjoy making much of him forever. You see the difference there. One says that escape from God's wrath is the aim of salvation. The other statement makes escape from God's wrath a means of enjoying him forever. It's a big deal. This is a massive deal in a culture in which people are fine with escaping hell, but could care less if they gain Christ. Now what we just said about wrath, same thing could be said about this morning's passage about guilt, about condemnation. This morning we've been talking about guilt in Adam, condemnation in Adam. Listen to these two statements as it pertains to this morning's passage and see if you notice the difference between the two. One way we could say it is to say, Jesus rescued me from guilt and condemnation by taking my guilty verdict and giving me his righteous record. Is that true? Yes and amen. But listen to the second way we could say it that's far more glorious. Jesus took my guilt and gifted me his righteousness so that I could stand before holy God and not be banished from his presence as a guilty sinner, but rather could enjoy making much of him forever, basking in his glory. That's the kind of gospel Paul has in mind in verse 21. The kind of gospel in which eternal life and Jesus Christ our Lord go hand in hand. They they can't be separated. So let me leave you with this last question. Is it simply the pardon from guilt that draws you to Christianity? Or is it the fact that being declared righteous is what allows you to bask in the presence of God forever? The gospel is not that you get to escape hell and have your guilt absolved. The gospel is that you get God. God's the gospel. God is the gift. He's the end. Everything else is a means that opens that door, that pathway to enjoy him forever. And Christ, our sin-conquering, serpent-crushing Savior, has made a way for that to happen. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.